morning. Uh, so, <clears throat> in, in many ways, growing up, I was a typical teenager. Uh, one of the things in which I was apparently fairly atypical uh, for my generation is when I was growing up, I was not a big video game player. It was never something I cared about. I remember I had a PlayStation growing up at one point, and I played a couple games, usually ones that you could play with friends. But like, I, I, you know, in youth ministry, I had all these folks who would spend like days upon days with their headsets on in their basement playing Halo. I remember going to college and they had all these Halo parties and all these various you know, the video games that were big at the time. And, and I just was never into that stuff. But the one video game that I loved was Mario Kart Double Dash on GameCube. If you play it, any other Mario Kart game is silly and dumb and I don't care for it. But I loved that. That was, that was the one game that I just... Like, I'm so good at it, I once beat, there's a, there's a computer inside that you can beat, and then there's a ghost of that computer of the creators of the game that will follow you around. And I've beaten that. And I can have that little ghost following me around. And in college, <clears throat> we would have Mario Kart tournaments um, in our silly little dorms. And th this stuff got as serious as the World Series, I promise you. Like... ESPN Ocho probably covered it at some point or another, the level of Mario Kart games we had. And if you're not familiar with Mario Kart, chances are you may not be. There's, you know, the whole point of it, it's a racing game. You race with other, with characters from the Mario world. And the whole point of the racing game is that you collect these items, which you can then throw at people that are racing against you in order to slow them down. You can throw like a banana peel behind you and they slip on it and all these different things. You know, you can throw like a blue shell that blows them up <clears throat> and then they have to start over again. It's, it's kind of, so it's like a, a racing game that's semi-violent, but in a way that like my son could look at and not be scared, right? <clears throat> very, very G-rated stuff. Um, and my favorite item in Mario Kart was the star. <clears throat> if you collected the star, what it did is you started to glow and you would go a little faster than everyone, but more importantly than that, you were invincible for like a certain amount of time. So someone could throw something at you and it would just brush right off. If you drove into somebody, they flew off the track. Like you were this like beautiful, fast thing of invincibility just rolling through the track and nothing could touch you for about 15, 20 seconds. And then it'd go back to normal, right? I loved the star. Today, we're looking at the church in Smyrna. We're in Revelations 2, uh, verses 8 through 11. And at first glance, this text seems about to be about severe persecution, right? Smyrna is one of the letters that uh, Jesus doesn't say anything against the church in Smyrna. It's not a, I love this, but I hate this. He loves everything about them, according to this letter. But there's a lot of warning about persecution and suffering within the letter to Smyrna. <clears throat> but when we dig deeper, one of the things we note is that it's, it's, it's really not a letter about persecution of the church as it is a letter about how supremely wonderful and glorious and all-powerful and sovereign Jesus Christ is. It's, it's an ode to the supremacy of Christ. And, and, and Jesus, in a way, for the people of Smyrna in this letter and for us, Jesus is like that star, right? We go through the life race. We have things thrown at us as we try to compete for first place. We continuously get knocked back down. We could be leading for three laps and then just get knocked to eighth place for, for something that happens to us. 
But, but, but Christ is like the star in Mario Kart in some terrible analogy that your pastor concocted, right? In that when you're under, under the lordship of Christ, when he reigns in your life and when he makes you his, you are in some way invincible. You can't be touched. And anything that comes your way ultimately bounces off. And so as we read this letter and we look at it, we need to see the persecution for sure, and we'll spend time on that. But really, each and every verse just drips with the supremacy of Jesus as our star that keeps us safe and that causes us to be, as his people, a people that are invincible, right? But first, since this is a shorter letter and we have a little bit of time, we're going to try to spend just a little bit of time nerding out. Um, You may never have heard this phrase before, but it's important, and this will actually help you read the Bible for yourself. A lot of times in Scripture, there's what we call chiastic structured verses, okay? Super fancy word. I'm not a huge guy to bring out super fancy words all the time. This one's really helpful. What Scripture will do a lot of times, the Hebrew people and the Greek, like the way they would emphasize points, there's no exclamation marks in Hebrew or in Greek, it's not like there was like punctuation marks that could make something important or, you know, you put it, somehow there's a way to put it in bold or something like that. And so they had other literary devices and ways that they would tell you that something is really important. And chiastic structure is one of them. So here's how it works. Usually you would have like an idea that would be idea A and then an idea that would be idea B and then an idea C and then after C, it would go, the, the, the B idea would get repeated <clears throat> And then after that, the A idea would get repeated. So if you look at the letters that we're talking about in these seven weeks, they form a chiastic structure, right? The first and the last letter, the churches are really similar. They're they're doing kind of what they're supposed to be doing in some way, but but they've lost, uh, in the case of Ephesus, they've lost their first love. And in the case of Laodicea, they've lost their passion. They're lukewarm. And so Jesus has that against them, right? The second to last and the second of the letters, one of which we're looking at today, is the two letters, the only two times in all of them that Jesus has nothing against the church. It just offers them encouragement and praise, right? Philadelphia, which we'll get to in week six, actually is more so even praised for what they're doing than the church of Smyrna today. It's like he's doting on the church and bragging about how wonderful and faithful they are, right? And then in between, we have these C123, and in them, it's a progression from bad to worse to worst, right? And so you have the church that is at Pergamum, which we'll talk about next week, and their issue is that they have false teachers. Then we have the church that is at Thyatira, and they have false teachers and false practices. So they've let the false teachers go long enough that they're doing stuff they shouldn't be doing, right? There's evidence of, we didn't just let them in, but we're listening to them, and we've changed who we are as a result, and then by the time we get to the church in Sardis, that's a typo, should be S-A-R-D-I-S, Sardis, the Lord actually says that church is dead. And so we see the importance part of the letters is in an overall way is, is that in the middle we have this, hey, listen, on the fringe we have, if you're righteous but you kind of forsake your first love, things won't go so well, then you, do, you can be fully faithful, but 
you know, persecution hits and, and life still is, is hard. And then in the middle, you have this progression. Listen, if you don't address these issues of first love and passion, and if you start to let false teachers in, it will erode the church until it's dead. And so the letters individually every week actually speak to us and tell us things and instruct us in, in the counsel of God's word. But if we look at all the letters as one cohesive piece, we can actually learn. You can do a whole sermon without ever getting into one of the letters. Right? It's, it's this lesson about how the church needs to be careful because the small acts of unfaithfulness can grow to the point where it kills a church if we're not careful. Right? And so chiastic structure is helpful. If you ever read a passage in Scripture and you read a, a point and you're like, oh, that's a good point, and then you read down and all of a sudden that point gets like repeated again at the end of the section, start to look closer. Do like an outline of like what are the main things he's saying. Chances are you'll find a ABBA or an ABCDCBA in that. And you'll start to notice that usually the middle one is the important point of the whole section. It helps you read your Bible. You're welcome. That one was free. You didn't have to put anything in the offering plate for that one. All right, let's take a look at Revelation and let's stand together as we read from the Word of God in Revelation 2, chapters, chapter 2, verses 8 through 11. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, the words of the first and the last, who died and came to life. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich, and the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested. And for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God indeed. You can have a seat. I put up a little map. Um, it can be helpful. Uh, we could put this up every week. But it gives you an idea of where the churches are, right? And so Patmos is where John was exiled. And then we see the progression. He goes to Ephesus, Smyrna, and then up to Pergamum, down to Thyatira, down to Sardis, down to Philadelphia, down to Laodicea. So you see kind of the, the circular pattern that the letters would have traveled to get to their destinations. And from there, they would go out into Asia Minor and up across into Macedonia and down into Antioch. You know, they would have spread to all the churches from that area. But it just gives you a good idea. Now, Smyrna. We need to talk about Smyrna a little bit just to understand the context because when we look at the persecution in Smyrna, the context of what the city was and is helps us understand exactly how persecution hits there. It is the only city that still exists today. Of all the seven churches that are written to, none of those cities exist anymore. They're all ancient cities. They've been, they're, they're different places now. They've kind of completely ceased to exist and were barren and then were brought up as new cities. But Smyrna still exists today. It's called Izmir, and it's the third most populated city in Turkey. All right. You can imagine what some of the first were. And so Smyrna, in its time was a very well-to-do city. It was a large city. It was one of the largest cities in the region. Uh, it was one of the largest places for, for trade besides Ephesus. It was second only to Ephesus in the area. And it was a bastion of Romanness in every way. Right? 
Smyrna has a 200-year-plus legacy of allegiance to Rome. When Rome was in conflict with other surrounding places, Smyrna was the fortress of Rome. Man, it was, it was the place that Rome could count on. They were loyal to Caesar and have a centuries of track record to prove it and to show it. As a matter of fact, there was a, there was a, a contest and a competition at one point, and, and, and all these cities in the area were vying for who would get to build the temple to Emperor Tiberius Caesar right, at the time, and, and Smyrna was selected. They were the leaders of Caesar worship. They worshipped the Roman gods, and they held Caesar as the divine god that he thought he was. Right? There was probably no more loyal city to the Roman Empire than Rome itself. And on certain days, you might even be able to question that Smyrna was even more loyal because they might have had something to prove. Right? And so that's important to understand. Rome controlled that place, and allegiance to Rome controlled that place. For you to step on Rome in Smyrna would be to sign yourself a death sentence. The second thing to understand is that there was a fairly large amount of pockets of Jewish population in Smyrna. So you had a whole lot of Jews that were there and living amongst the Roman people. And so when you put those things together, you start to get an idea of how and why we might have seen the persecution of Christians. And the hint that we get the thing that we have to unpack to get there is verse 9. It says, Now I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And here's the key. And the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Right. So there's these people. Jesus says, I know your trials and your tribulations. I know the struggles you have. And, and I also know the slander that you're experiencing. And that slander is coming from people who say they're Jews but they're really not Jews. As a matter of fact, they are a synagogue of Satan. I don't know about you. If there is a label that I don't want Jesus to stick on me or my people group, it's synagogue of Satan. That's a pretty harsh rebuke. And so the question is, well, what have these Jew, non-Jews, synagogue of Satan people done to deserve this title from Jesus? And the answer is, they are the cause of the Christian persecution in every way. In Roman time, and we can go back to, to Jesus' life and death, we can go back to the early church before we get to this point. In, in, in Roman culture, the Jews actually had very little authority after they were conquered, right? The Jewish people hated the Romans, but they were under their thumb. And Rome did something a little different than other conquerors did. Rome would let you do freely as you pleased as long as you didn't upset the status quo of the Roman Empire, right? So you, as long as you give the Caesar what's his, you can go have your synagogues and your churches and you can be, but when it comes time to declare who your, who your government loyalty is, you better say Rome and you better give all hail to Caesar or else, right? And so even at the time of Jesus, right, the Jews, the, the people of God existed kind of under the thumb of Rome and they hated them, but they were able to kind of live their lives out. And so in Smyrna, that's happening too. Right? There's Jewish pockets there, and they're living, and the, the, the Romans aren't really bothering them, and they're not really bothering the Romans. They pay their taxes even though they hate them for it, but they're just kind of existing. But here's the key. In the Roman Empire, the Jews had no authority for justice. They didn't have the ability to go to the Christians 
and start to persecute them directly. Because if they did, with no good reason, Rome would have intervened and, and seen the scene that was caused and the uproar. Rome wants to squash the uproar. They want everything to be honky-dory. And so the Jews didn't actually have the ability to go and persecute the Christians in any direct way. And so here's what they had to do and what they most likely did. The Jews would slander the Christian people in Smyrna to the officials of the Roman Empire. And they would say things about the way the Christian church thought and operated that didn't line up with the reality of how we know the Christian church today and back then operated and operates. Right? And so, for instance, they would say things like, you know, they have a whole different king, Rome. Jesus is their king. I thought Caesar should be all of our king or emperor. I mean, they're, they're saying that that Jesus is the king, so if Jesus is their king, then really it can't be, Caesar can't be, they, they are insurrectionists. You need to deal with these people because they're going to rise up and they're, all of a sudden they're going to say their king is better than your king and they're going to go after and, and they're going to cause trouble in the city and, and you need to deal with it. And so the Romans then responded by jailing and killing Christians because of the lies that were being spread by the Jewish people. Now, you might read this and go, man, Vince, you're a really good expositor. You just read that one little verse and you got all of that? Like, are there footnotes that I'm not aware of somewhere? Or are you just making all this up? Well, I'm not making it up because we see that it happens all through time. Now, we don't have evidence that that's the exact lie that was spread by the Jewish people in the city of Smyrna. But we see the track record of the Jewish people in Jesus' time and beyond. Right? Jesus himself says in verse 9, I know the slander. And part of how Jesus knows the slander is because this is the exact playbook that the Jewish people used on Jesus himself. What did they call him? King of the Jews. Right? The Jewish people, when they, went to, when they wanted Jesus to be arrested and crucified and they called for his head, they went to the Roman officials and they said, "Good, he's an insurrectionist. He says he's the king. And we can read in the Gospels exactly how, like quotations of how the Jewish people used insurrection and slander against Jesus to stir up the Roman government against him. And eventually, the Roman government handed them to the Jews, handed them back to the Jews, and gave the green light to crucify him. Right? That's what it's all about when they say, when they're in front of Pilate, and Pilate's trying to deal with them and doesn't really know what to do, but then eventually we get to the point where Barabbas and Jesus is put in front of the Jews, and he's saying, listen, maybe if I put this hardened criminal and Jesus, and I make them choose one to kill, they'll choose the murderer for sure, but no, they pick Jesus, and so Rome actually green lights the Jews to crucify him. Otherwise, it wouldn't have happened. The Jewish church, so to say, the synagogue, the temple, the people of, of God's people in, in Judaism in, in, in Jesus' time, they wouldn't have been able to just grab Jesus and kill him. Rome would have had something to say about it. Rome greenlights all the justice that occurs. We see it if we go to Acts chapter 17. We can see this very, very clearly. Paul is passing through a bunch of towns and preaching. And it says, now when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica. There was a synagogue of Jews, and Paul went in as was his custom. And on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, 
saying, This Jesus who I proclaim to you is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks. But the Jews were jealous. And taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob, set the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the authorities, shouting, here it is, These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also, and Jason has received them, and they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. And the people in the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. And they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest, and they let them go. And so we see, we actually can see a, a full witness account of the Jews stirring up the Roman authorities. They literally go to Rome and say, those people say there's another king. You should probably deal with that. Right? And so that's what's happening in Smyrna. And, and, and we talk about this in detail and exactly what the nature of the persecution is for a very good reason. Because when we look at persecution in our context, we're going to start to see how some of these things line up together. But the point is, Slander was happening, and it's, it's the thing that caused the struggle for the Christians in the city of Smyrna. And so they were seeing a tribulation and a poverty, right? The tribulation, likely because Rome was messing with them and imprisoning them and, and killing them. The poverty, because when Rome kind of signs off on your death warrant, no one wants anything to do with you, and so you really didn't have the ability to do business. If you were a tradesman, no one was buying your stuff. They were buying the guy's stuff down the street because you're one of those insurrectionist, filthy Christians, right? And I don't want anything to do with your business. As a matter of fact, I worry if I buy from you that Rome will come after me next. So I'm going to stay far away. And so the Christians were, were either in jail or killed or they were going broke because no one wanted to deal with them anymore. And now I said that while this letter is about persecution, it's really about Jesus, right? So let's look at that in detail as we look through this set of verses together. There are six things that we learn about Jesus as we read through this scripture. And so to begin, we have to look at the very introduction in verse 8. And so the angel of the church in Smyrna, or to the angel of the church in Smyrna, write, the words of the first and the last, the one who died and came to life. The intro to each letter, Jesus introduces himself in a different way in all seven letters. And all seven of those intros are a small pie, a slice of the pie, of the bigger kind of description of Jesus in Revelation chapter 1, right? So Revelation 1, John sets up the scene, he enters the vision, and Jesus describes himself to John, and he sees in great detail all these things, the first and the last. There's all, this long list of titles and accolades that are given about Jesus, and, and in each letter, he picks a part of that to introduce himself to the church that he's introducing himself to. And the parts that he picks are relevant to their scenario and their situation. So for the, for the Smyrna church, right, you have persecution and struggle. And so he introduces himself as the first and the last, the one who died and came to life. Because he is the God who was there first and is there end. And he's, he's, he died and struggled, but he yet lives. And so it's a comforting way for the church of Smyrna to be introduced to Jesus, Right? Some churches really need to get their stuff together, and the introduction goes something along the lines of the one who holds the stars, essentially the one who's like Zeus, who will lightning bolt you if you don't get your stuff together. Right? Some of the intros aren't as soft and loving, but in this case, he introduces himself in a way that the Smyrna church would resonate with. 
and be comforted by. Hi, I'm Jesus. I'm the one who was before and is at the end. I'm the one who died, but yet I live. Listen to what I have to say to you. Right? And so the first thing we learn is Jesus has always been and Jesus will always be. Christ precedes their persecution and ours and our struggles. He was there before your struggles ever saw the light of day. And he'll be there long after those struggles are done. Right? He's not going anywhere. He's constant. He's permanent. He's a rock, a solid rock right? for us and for them. Number two, Jesus, though he was killed, is not dead but alive. Right? And so as they're about to be talked about in regards to, to suffering and struggle and death and imprisonment, they, they need to know that Jesus is the one who, yeah, Jesus died too. I'm facing death. Jesus died, but he's around. Like, he's, he didn't stay dead. Everyone else I know has, who died has stayed dead, with the exception of Lazarus, and Jesus had something to do with that. And so we're serving a, a Christ who, though dead, is risen and currently ruling his due, righteously due inheritance, the kingdom. And so just in those opening verses, we learn an immense amount of stuff about Christ. He always was and he always will be. And though he died, he is still alive today. All right, next, verse 9. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but yet you are rich. And the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. I know. The third thing we learn about Jesus is that Jesus knows you. He knows you deeply, and he knows you intimately. Jesus Christ knows you better than you know yourself. He knows your struggles. He knows of the things that are causing your life pain. He knows of the reasons for the things that are causing you pain, even though you might say, I have no idea why God would allow this to happen to me. He does. He knows. He understands. He knows your poverty. He knows your tribulation. He knows the slander. That's a key one. He knows the slander that is happening to you. When people speak ill of you without reason, he knows about it. He gets it. And when he says he knows, it's not just an awareness. Like you might send me an email and say, Pastor, please pray for me. I'm going through this and this. And I might say, oh, thank you. I now know that you're going through this. That doesn't mean I know your struggle. Right? I might. I might have gone through a similar thing, but it's not a knowing in the same sense as we talk about with Jesus knowing. The know that is used in this text is this active, this deep understanding and knowledge. He understands and sympathizes with the tribulation and the poverty and the slander. And because we just talked about how the persecution goes, when he says he knows their slander, he means it because he experienced it. As the people of Smyrna cry out, the Jews are rising up against us. They're saying stuff about us that's not true. Rome's coming after us for stuff that we're not even doing. I don't understand. How do we set the record straight? Why would they do such a thing? Jesus is saying, yeah, I know. How do you think I died? How do you think I ended up on that cross? They did the same thing to me. It's the same playbook. They did it to me, and by the way, they did it to Paul and his people in the early church as well before he ever came to you to start your church. Right? 
I know. Jesus knows us. I don't know about you. It is comforting for me to understand in times of struggle, whether it is persecution or just a rough day, that Jesus knows about it. We pray to him not to inform him about our day. As if he needed, like, Jesus is up there like, all right, Vince is praying. Let me get some notes. Oh, wait, you got a new job? That's awesome. All right. No, Jesus knows. We pray because he wants us to communicate with him. He wants us to be in communion with him. Right? He knows. Jesus knows. It is so comforting for me when I wake up and go through a struggle of a day to know that, man, Jesus knows about it. He's up there. He always was. He always will be. He died, but he rose, and he knows what I'm going through. And he's powerful enough to do about it whatever he wants. Whether he does what I want him to do is a different story, right? But at least I'm comforted in the idea that he knows, right? When you suffer and struggle in this life, Jesus is with you. He knows your strife, and he's for you. Fourth, verse 10. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Jesus commands us to not have fear. Now, who here has been afraid at some point in their life? Sinners. No. <laughs> what he's not saying is that if you have fear, you, you, you are sinful. This is not like a, this is not a, I, I was afraid once of the dark when I was six, so I guess that was sinful. No, like fear is a natural part of life. But, but nonetheless, Jesus commands us very bluntly. The word here for do not in, in, in the Greek language is, a very, is this what we call a strong imperative. It's not a, you shouldn't be afraid. It's a, don't you dare fear. Well, but I'm afraid. Figure it out. Don't be afraid in light of all the other stuff about me that I'm telling you. Right? We have a command of God not to fear. His life, ministry, and words are all the confidence that we should need. When we are afraid, when we struggle through things, we can look to Christ and who he is and what he's done and what he's doing, and we take our fear and we cast it upon him and we say, yeah, I, don't, I, I need to logically be terrified of this. Right? If not for Jesus, we should all be terrified all the time. You shouldn't be able to sleep because of how scared you are of everything, literally everything. But with Christ, we can cast our fear on him and know that he cares for us, he knows us, he loves us. And whatever struggle we go through isn't final, right? And that's the next one. Fifth, persecution and hardship will come to us. What does he say? Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested. And for ten days you will have tribulations. Now, ten days. Doesn't sound so bad, right? We're not talking a literal ten-day period here. Um, scripture likes to use things, uh, numbers, in, in many different ways. You know, like the thousand years and those kinds of things. And we can, someday we'll have a conversation about Revelation and the end times and what the thousand years mean and all that good stuff. But... Um, spoiler alert, I don't believe that the thousand years is a literal thousand years. Uh, most people in a Reformed tr tradition don't believe that. But ten, ten days is kind of a way to signify, hey, a, a long time, but not endless time. Like, you're about to suffer 
for, for quite a bit of time. You're about to go through some real struggles. Many of you are going to be in prison. Some of you will probably die. Um, but but it's, not a, it's not a forever struggle. There's an end coming to your struggle. And so persecution will come, but there is an end. And at this point, when we, when we understand that not just for the church of Smyrna, but for our church as well, and for the church today, um, struggle will come. This letter, I think, helps us process that struggle in a way that very few parts of Scripture can, can accomplish. And here's what I mean. The, the pattern that we just laid out for the Jewish people and how they slandered that pattern is exactly what's still alive today. And when we experience trial and persecution and tribulation as Christians and individually in our jobs or families or spheres of influence or as a church kind of corporately in the country and world in which we live, we need to understand how that persecution is actually coming our way. And the way that it's coming is through slander the way that it came through the time of this letter and of Christ and of Paul, right? It might not be the Jewish people, right? It just happened to be the Jewish people, right? You shouldn't go home today and be like, man, the Jewish people are terrible. You should never think that, right? They are people, image bearers of God. But at this time, it just so happened they were the instigators. Today, it's, it's random people in the culture. There's no religious particular group at all that's it's after us. It's just the world and the culture in general. And here's what happens. People in the world today are not going to walk in here and have arguments with us about our theology and say, you know, I, I just don't buy that. If you got rid of that, we'd be, we'd be fine. Right? The reason I know that is because most of the people outside of these room, this room don't really know or care about what our theology is. They don't understand our beliefs, enough to even really interact with and critique them. Here's what they understand. Those Christians are bigoted hypocrites. They hate everybody. They tell everybody how to live their lives, and if you don't conform to the exact way that they in Scripture say that you should live, they hate you and they want you gone. If your sexuality doesn't line up, they hate your guts. Now, is that true? Do we know that? No, of course not. We love people. We want to see them come to a saving understanding and repentance. But that's not the way the culture talks about us. They slander. We are the bigots. And if we get our way, this country is going to go to hell so fast. And all of your rights are going to be gone. And we're all going to wear, you know, like weird robes and walk around and, and be kind of this weird cult that has no freedom. Your very freedom as an American is going to be destroyed if the church has its way. Isn't that what we see in the news? Christianity is pitted against liberalistic freedom. The world doesn't care about what we actually do in here. What they do is they set it up so that for you to care about, love, or speak in support of Christ or the church is for you to be a hater of pretty much everybody. And you might say, well, I don't, I don't want to be known as as someone who's a hater, so I guess I'll just either, you know, I'll, I'll keep quiet or I just won't, I won't speak in support or I won't witness in the workplace or I, I'll just, I'll just kind of keep it down. I'll keep my faith personal. That's how it's supposed to be, right? Our faith is like a personal thing. It's not supposed to be shared. It's, it's, it's mine. And, 
And so I, I don't want people to speak that way about God, and so I'll just, I'll just stay quiet. It's really important for you to understand that the, the, the culture of the world actually doesn't have that much of a problem with the real message of Christianity. What they fight with is the fake crap, the stuff that the slander, the lies about who we are and what we believe and how we want to operate. And in some ways, yes, the church, the people of the church are sinners and can be hypocritical and can not help that cause, right? But the message of Christ itself isn't what most people who hate the church have problems with. It's the lies that the culture spreads, the slander, right? They go and they stir up, if religious freedom is allowed to prevail, no one will have any more rights in this country. It's not true. It's not true at all. But that's what happens. And so the world will try to paint Christians in such a light that being with them and on their side would make you a horrible, horrible, mean, hateful, spiteful person. And that's why the world hates us. The playbook didn't change whatsoever from the time of Jesus to the time of today. Right? So persecution will come, and you will be hated as a Christian at some point in your life, and you'll be hated falsely. You won't be hated for what you actually are and believe. You'll be hated for what the world says you are and believe. And it's not a truth. It's a lie. It's really important to recognize that. That's why I believe silence as Christians is so dangerous and witness as Christians is so important. We have to be a people that are out there in the world boldly and proudly and lovingly proclaiming the actual truth because otherwise all the world is going to hear about you is what outside of Christianity people have to say about you. And that's going to be the opinion that's formed. And the only way around that is to witness, to speak boldly. Right? Jesus knew this. He didn't go around speaking terribly of people. He proclaimed the truth. And when it got him in trouble, he kept doing it. Paul would literally be beaten out of cities. And he would get up, dust himself off, take a moment to get his stuff together, and walk back in and just keep preaching the gospel. He didn't go in with the mean spirit. He just went in and kept saying the truth, right, over and over and over again. Persecution will come. We must be faithful witnesses in a response. Sixth, we will follow in the footsteps of Jesus. In Jesus' promise of coming persecution, there is another promise. It's going to be short, right? And when it ends, we will follow Jesus, not just in death, but also in life. In verse 11, we see the promise spelled out clearly. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. Right? There's the first death. We all will experience earthly death in this life. None of you won't die. Every one of you will die. Some of you tomorrow, some of you in 10 years, some of you in 40 years. But every one of you is going to experience death. But what you won't experience is the full death, the second death. Right? You'll experience death the same exact way that Jesus experienced it. You'll breathe your last and then you'll rise in glory. Because his death and resurrection set the pattern for the rest of those who are under him. And so what does it tell us to do? What's the, what's the call to action here? It's the second part of verse 10 that's the key to this whole thing. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. Right? Jesus has always been and always will be even though he's dead and killed, he still lives and is risen. 
He knows your struggles, and he knows you intimately and deeply. He tells you not to be afraid. He tells you struggles will come. Don't be afraid of them. They won't last. And he tells you that just as I died and rose, so you will also die and rise. And so our job is to be faithful unto death. We are called to leave our life in his hands. We are called to be faithful and commit and trust Jesus that he will uphold us in struggle and in strife. When the world hates us, he tells us, they hated me too, I know what it's like. Keep pressing into me, keep following me, keep loving me, keep walking after me, keep pushing after the things of God. And I promise you that come what may, at the end of this life, you will rise in glory alongside of me just as I have risen. Right? We have to risk our health, our wealth, our families, our comforts, our futures. We have to put these things behind us when it comes to following God, and we have to walk forward as the church of Smyrna did, and he encourages them to continue to be faithful and steadfast because he is with them. And as he died and rose, so you and I will die and rise, whether we die in our old comfortable age or we're killed for the gospel tomorrow. All of us in this room who are under the lordship of Christ will share the same glory. You serve a God for whom death has no meaning. And he calls you to live with that comfort. He calls you to go through the race of life as if you've got the star that doesn't last 20 seconds, but for eternity, that covers you, that lets the world and its troubles in an ultimate way just bounce right off. Because in the end, none of it's going to matter. What will matter is were you a faithful witness until the end. The church in Smyrna was doing this well, and he commended them for it. My prayer is that should the Lord ever write to the church of Stowe Presbyterian Church, that it might be a letter that looks a whole lot like this. Right? That at the end of it, we can stand before him and hear the words, well done, good and faithful servant. Now come and take your inheritance. I've been preparing a place for you. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your sovereignty. We thank you for the comfort of knowing that Jesus is our conqueror, our redeemer, our reward, our life and resurrection. We thank you that because of the grace and the power of Jesus Christ, we don't have to be afraid. And Lord, we pray that through your Holy Spirit, you might impart this truth more and more onto our lives so that we might understand and live in the light of your comfort and your invincibility. We pray that this week as we go into the world that, that hates us because of lies, that we might be proclaimers of the truth. We pray that through our words and our wisdom that is given by you, that there might be people this week that come to understand the true, real gospel in a way that they've never heard it before. That you might use us to wade through all the muck and the mire of the lies about the church that have been spread in our culture and in our world today. Use us to proclaim your truth. Use us boldly. Use us in power. Use us even when it's hard. Give us strength to press on when we don't want to, when we're afraid. Spirit, empower us to be your witnesses in our Jerusalem, our surrounding Judea and Samaria, and Lord, to the ends of the earth, as you tell us in Acts 1.8. We love you. And we praise you. And all his people said, Amen. Amen.